0: When the Nazis invaded Holland, they made it illegal for anyone to house or even help a Jewish person. Corrie Ten Boom and her family decided they simply could not obey this evil dictate, so they began hiding small groups of Jewish people and others who sought refuge. You've heard of Corrie Ten Boom, perhaps, but her story comes to life through a dramatic interpreter. Coming up. Hey, welcome to The Land and the Book. Our host is Charlie Dyer. I'm John Gager, and this week we have done something a little on the crazy side. We've traveled to Israel. Charlie, explain why we're here and what we're about. Well, we're gathering interviews and stories because we want to do a
1: special for uh, Moody Radio, Israel After the War. So we've uh, lined up a lot of people uh, from the Gaza border all the way up to the Sea of Galilee to talk to, find out what's been happening, And uh, just look for a rather exciting time. And uh, so hopefully people can stay tuned because a special will be coming shortly.
0: Yes, Charlie says, keep an ear out for that special, which you'll be able to connect with either through this station or certainly online. And we're looking forward, as he says, to talking with survivors, people who were actually in those kibbutzes that were attacked, ministries that have been impacted, and so much more. Well, Charlie, Passover will soon be upon us. And uh, one of the traditional Passover questions is, what makes this night different from all others. Passover is an important biblical holiday that has great meaning for both Jewish people and believers in Jesus. But this is a great question to ask. What makes this night different from all others? That's right. And if you want to learn more about what makes Passover
1: so special, well, our friends at Life and Messiah are offering to mail you a free copy of their Messianic Passover Haggadah. The booklet will lead you through the celebration of Passover to see the rich connections to Jesus our Messiah and the Last Supper. You'll also receive a link for an interactive Passover Seder video. With the Haggadah and video, you can celebrate Passover this year with your family and friends. Now to get this free offer, Just go to lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to find out more and
0: request your copy. That's lifeinmessiah.org. Well, lots to talk about in the Middle East, so let's begin with story number one. From Jerusalem all the way north to Mount Hermon, Israel has experienced a very above-average winter weather-wise. Well, how has the rain impacted the country, and will it continue? Yeah, you know, if rain's
1: a blessing, then the northern half of Israel has definitely been blessed so far this winter. Draw an east-west line through Israel right at Jerusalem. Head north, and the amount of rain is above average. For example, at Capernaum, they've received so far this year 170% of their normal-to-date rainfall. The water level at the Sea of Galilee is now three feet below the upper red line, which is when the lake is completely filled. It will keep rising as the rain that fell in the far north makes its way down toward the lake. In fact, it could reach capacity by the end of this month. The dam at the southern end of the lake would then need to be opened for the first time in decades. But head to the south of Jerusalem and the situation changes dramatically. Beersheba has only received about 50% of their normal to-date winter rainfall, and other places down in the Negev have only received about a third of their normal rainfall. Uh, There's at least another month when rain can be expected, so the numbers could still change dramatically. The wheat farmers in the south are certainly hoping for more rain before it's time to harvest. Uh, Right now, northern Israel is definitely green and lush, and they're calling for a little more rain later this week. The long-range forecast also shows several other periods of rain that might arrive later in the month. Seeing all the lush green vegetation in the north along with a nearly full Sea of Galilee is
0: definitely a blessing. Well, the conflict between Israel and Hamas continues, but there are some hopeful signs the tensions might be about to ease. What's the latest on the war, Charlie, and how realistic are these hints we're hearing about, hints of progress coming from the region?
1: Well, after five months, it's difficult to become too excited over reports of possible breakthroughs, but there are at least some hints of progress. A new round of hostage talks are underway. They're still discussing whether they can agree on a specific framework for negotiation. So there's a long way to go. Some are hoping a temporary ceasefire can be arranged in the next week or so that would allow for the release of the remaining hostages. Then this past Monday, the Palestinian Authority government resigned. It's been under pressure from the U.S. to reform, and a majority of Palestinians just see it as a corrupt organization that does need to be replaced. But what's unclear right now is whether this is an actual change or just a reshuffling of the deck to keep Abbas in power. Uh, still, another hopeful sign is that the army has given the all clear for many living in the communities close to the Gaza border to return home. Over the next few weeks, this should lead to the resettlement of those communities. Now, we're planning on visiting the area this coming week, so we might see these communities coming back to life. Some of the hotel chains in Israel have also told evacuees they need to begin exiting the hotels. Part of the reason is the return to normalization. But the hotels also want to begin the process of cleaning and refurbishing so they can be ready for the expected influx of Jewish and Christian tourists, especially with Easter and Passover later this month and then in April. All in all, it looks like things will start returning to normal in the next few weeks, assuming that Hamas and Hezbollah cooperate, and that the new Palestinian government can rein in corruption and violence.
0: Charlie, I'm sure some of our listeners are as confused as I am when they hear that the Palestinian Authority government has resigned, at least symbolically. That's well and good, but isn't the real problem here Hamas anyway?
1: It is. And the fact that Hamas is actually seen as the one group that has tried to do something, Abbas and his Palestinian Authority cronies have been known for inaction and corruption.
0: You're listening to The Land and the Book. If you've joined us midstream, our host is Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. We're working our way through a list of current event stories. The International Court of Justice met again, this time to consider issuing an advisory about Israel's control over the West Bank and Jerusalem. What impact could their ruling have on the current conflict?
1: Yeah, this six-day hearing, which ended this past Monday, is different than the previous one that was held That hearing focused on charges of genocide that were brought by South Africa against Israel. And since Israel had signed that treaty, they appeared at that first hearing to defend themselves. This latest hearing focused on the U.N. General Assembly's request for an advisory opinion on the legal consequences of Israel's 56-year control of the West Bank and other Palestinian areas. The Palestinians claim Israel's guilty of ethnic cleansing, apartheid, and genocide due to its long-term rule of the area. They want the International Court of Justice to declare the Israeli occupation illegal and to order an immediate end. Advisory opinions like this one being sought are non-binding. They have no legal ramifications, but they can give diplomatic cover to other nations and encourage them to take action against Israel. The United States urged the court not to issue a ruling calling for Israel's immediate withdrawal from these areas. The U.S. spokesman argued that both the U.N. Security Council and General Assembly had established a pathway to a peaceful resolution through negotiations that would exchange land for peace. Demanding Israel's unilateral withdrawal would harm Israel's very real security needs. Israel captured the West Bank, Gaza, East Jerusalem, the Sinai Peninsula, and the Golan Heights back in 1967 in a defensive war launched against them by Egypt, Syria, and Jordan. UN Resolution 242, passed shortly afterward, called on Israel to withdraw from the territories it captured, but it also called for the termination of all claims or states of belligerency and to acknowledge the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Israel and its right to live in peace within secure and recognized borders. That's the basis of the land for peace process. Israel made peace with Egypt and gave back the Sinai. For 20 years, Israel was engaged in peace talks with the Palestinians, and two proposals were put forward. One was rejected at Camp David by Yasser Arafat. The other was rejected by Mahmoud Abbas. Now they want Israel to withdraw from all the land, but without any corresponding commitment to lasting peace. And October 7 showed why Israel distrusts the Palestinians. Fifty nations spoke, John, before this court, and very few stood up to speak
0: for Israel thankfully, the U.S. was one of those that did. Well, in an op-ed piece on a Turkish news site, two Turkish authors charged that Israel is, quote, weaponizing archaeology by twisting historical findings to bolster Israel's claims to the land. How serious are those charges? And more importantly, are they true?
1: Well, the charges are not true. It's actually these authors who've weaponized archaeology. Uh, They accused Israel of twisting historical findings to bolster the Zionist narrative. In reality, the charges don't fit the facts of history or archaeology. Israel is finding much evidence to support the reality that they're not Western colonizers, but indigenous inhabitants of the land. You know, they lived there from the time of Abraham until after the time of Jesus. And even after the Romans tried to ethnically cleanse them from the land, many still remained. From written references to the house of David on inscriptions you know, found at Tel Dan, to the tunnel dug by King Hezekiah to divert the waters of the Gihon Spring, to the Jewish ritual baths near the Temple Mount in the time of Jesus, archaeological evidence supporting Israel's presence in the land is indisputable. It's those who want to twist history to claim the Jewish people are just a modern Western occupying power who are trying to dismantle the clear archaeological record. Is there archaeological evidence pointing to a clear Jewish presence in the land for the past 4,000 years? There is, and that's what disturbs the authors of this op-ed piece. But for those of us who accept the message of the Bible, the overwhelming archaeological evidence for Israel's presence in the land comes as no surprise. It matches what God has already revealed in His Word. Thank you, Charlie. How can people pray for us as we travel throughout Israel? I think praying for safety and praying for wisdom
0: that we would know who to meet, how to meet, and what to say to them at that time. Thank you for those prayers. We appreciate it. Well, when the Nazis invaded Holland, they made it illegal for anyone to house or even help a Jewish person. But Corrie Ten Boom and her family said no. Her story is next. When the Nazis invaded Holland, they made it illegal for anyone to house or even help a Jewish person. Would you have complied? Cory, her sister Betsy, and her father Casper were Christians who decided they simply could not obey this evil dictate. So they began hiding small groups of Jewish people and others who sought refuge. You might have heard of Corey Tenboom, but today you're about to meet her through a dramatic interpreter. Welcome to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. This month marks the 80th anniversary of the capture of Cory Ten Boom and her family. What if you could somehow go back in time and meet Cory, ask her questions? Well, we're about to do just that. First, though, let's pause and think about some creative ways we can show the love of Jesus to the Jewish people who are in our lives. Let's listen to this. The Old Testament is rich with prophecy. How much of that, though, can you really talk about in a conversation with your Jewish friend? For example, what about Daniel's prophecies concerning the Maccabees and the events of Hanukkah? Roy Schwartz says with Chosen People Ministries, are we on safe ground talking about this kind of stuff? Sure, for a Gentile to know about Hanukkah? Are you kidding me? especially to know that it was spoken of by the Jewish prophet Daniel. Don't get into the New Testament necessarily. Just talk about the reality that God, through the prophet Daniel, foreshadowed and foresaw the actual events of Antiochus and the events of Hanukkah. Now, most Christians don't know that, but I suggest you study that and see how Daniel and Hanukkah fit together. And that will blow the mind of a Jewish person that you are interested in those things. All right, so maybe we need to do a little work on our own history and then reach out and share those prophecies from Daniel as a tool to bridge into the life of your unsaved Jewish friend. Roy Schwartz is with Chosen People Ministries. Always a pleasure to have him in the studio. All right, this is The Land of the Book, a very special edition on this 80th anniversary of the capture of Corrie Ten Boom and her family. And because our time is limited, we're going to jump right into our conversation, imagining that we are actually with the real Corrie Ten Boom. All right, walk down the streets of Harlem and Holland with me, a short train ride from Amsterdam as we connect with Corrie Ten Boom. Now, again, the real Corey Ten Boom has been with the Lord since 1983, but today we're going to experience a simulated conversation with her on the land and the book with a historical interpreter. We're going to meet her in her real life later. Corey, you are known for a thing called the hiding place. Describe this. How big was it, and how was it used?
2: Oh, my, the hiding place. Uh, we also call it the Angel's Den. You see, that was a place that was built in my bedroom uh, because I was up on the third floor, and that was give more time. You know, with a hiding place, you have to have alarm, too. And so it was tiny, some 30 inches wide and some 8 feet long. Could hold six people. On the outside, it appeared as a closet, but the bottom shelf was those so uh, those who would be staying in our angels' then they would have to climb into that small opening, and then I would close the door, and so it looked like the, uh, the closet, yes. Six
0: people at a time in this eight-foot-long thing.
2: Yes, yes. So they had to take the turns, of course, some sitting, some lying down. There were vents up in the ceiling. When we first were visited by the Dutch underground, they say, you need a hiding place. And the Mr. Schmidt, he come and he look and he look in my bedroom. Then in the days to follow, another Mr. Schmidt come with bricks. And then then another Mr. Schmidt come with wallpaper and paint and (laughs) and another with wood. My papa say, uh, he says, I don't recall there being so many Schmidts in Harlem. We say, oh, Papa, we don't want to know their name. We call them <laughs> O. Schmidt, you know, in case they arrest us. Yes. <laughs> well,
0: your family knew the severe penalty the Germans would exact from those yes. caught helping Jewish people. Why get so involved? What drove your family to do this?
2: Oh, my. In 1844, my grandfather, who lived in the house that we live, we called Beye, he, he was a Christian man, and he have prayer meeting. And they meet every week to pray. But one day in 1844, grandfather was visited by a pastor, Witteveen, and pastor come to grandfather and he say to him, do you pray for the Jews? Grandfather taught, he says, no, I do not. He said, you should pray for the Jews. You know, they are God's ancient people. He's uh, chosen people, chosen to bring us the Savior. You know, Jesus was Jewish, huh? <laughs> and he shared in the Bible, it tells us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Be concerned for the welfare of the Jews, and you will be blessed. And so Grandfather taught, and he say. Yes, I will do it. And so from that point on, every week they meet in that parlor room to pray for the Jews. And we say a very strange, not to be understood answer to those prayers. Some 100 years later, in that very place, grandfather's son, grandchildren, and others were arrested for hiding Jews. Hmm.
0: Today on the land in the book, it's a simulated conversation with Corey Tenboom. On February 28, 1944, a Dutch informant, Jan Vogel, told the Nazis about the Ten Boom's work. Around 12.30 p.m. that day, the Nazis arrested your entire family. Describe that experience. What was going on in your heart at that moment?
2: Oh, my. That day, I was very sick with the flu, and I was upstairs in the bed. But we had others there at our home. They were meeting for the Bible study. And when when Jan Vogel came and it was, he was quizzling, he was traitor, but the alarm went off and running past me while I was laying in the bed were the four Jews and two underground workers. And as they run past me, they say, Tanta, that is aunt." They say, Tanta, this is a real raid. And so I jumped from my bed and I helped them into the hiding place and uh, get them close in and I closed that door. Hmm. Yes. Wow.
0: What became of your father?
2: Oh, my precious Papa, so dear. You know, that night when uh, when we were arrested, uh, one of the Gestapo said to him, they say, you are old man. If you will stop this nonsense with the Jews, you can die in your old bed. But my Papa looked at him and he say, if anyone come to the baye I will open my doors to them. (laughs) And so they say, take him away. You know, he only lived some 10 days in the prison because the conditions were such it was too much for him. But oh, that grand old man. And when they take him away from us, he looked back at us and he say, I love you, my children. The best is yet to be. You can trust the everlasting arms of Jesus. Jesus is Victor.
0: Mm. And yet the best wasn't immediate, that's for sure. You're hauled off to a work camp. Describe that work camp that you were in, along with your sister Betsy. Remind us of things we don't quite understand about the conditions of daily life in prison like that.
2: Oh, my first I was taken to Schwenkening, which was uh, to solitary confinement. Do you know, John, all my life I had been with other people (laughs) in a very affirming atmosphere. But now totally alone. And when I would want to ask a question, they would say, shut up, no talking, you are a pig. Oh, my, do you know to be talked to like that? But then from solitary, I was taken to another camp. And then in September of 1944, myself, my sister Betsy and others, they said to gather your things, you're leaving. We thought, oh, oh, we're going to be released. But instead, we were taken to Ravensbruck Mm. concentration camp in Germany. And, oh, from the very beginning, the life was very harsh. I remember when they tell us we were in long line and they say all sorts of questions. But then they say, surrender your clothes. (laughs) Do you know it was also humiliating? And as we stand in our nakedness before the guards, oh, I think, oh, Jesus But then I remember, Jesus, when he died on the cross, you know, he was naked. Mm. And to suffer as Jesus, oh, uh, we were taken to barrack 28, a barrack designed to hold 200. Now we're holding as many as six to 800 people. Mm. Oh, and when we come, I look, <gasps> I say, Betsy, look, the floor is moving with vermin and the lice. Oh, but my sister Betsy, she squeezed my hand. She says, oh, but Corey, I'm thankful we are together. I say to her, well, I'm not thankful for the lies. (laughs) (laughs) But later, a guard was there and say, every morning you must come out at 4 a.m. to roll call. If you don't come out, we come in and we shoot you. Oh, my. But when that door (laughs) closed, one of the prisoners already in barrack 28 stand and say, welcome to your new home. We can do anything we want in here because, you see, the guards don't want to come in. They don't want to get the lice. <laughs> Betsy bumped my arm and say, Corey, even the lice we are thankful for. Oh, my. And in that place, we had smuggled a small Bible, and we were able to bring hope to a hopeless place. Yes.
0: You mentioned Betsy quite a bit. Eventually, Betsy's end came, and that had yes. to been terribly oh hard my. on you.
2: Yes, yes. Betsy told me one day, oh, the treatment was it was hard work and senseless, you know, move all these bricks from one place to another the next day. Who put the bricks there? Move the bricks. Oh, all senseless. But one day, Betsy said to me, she said, "Corey, I have had the dream. And in my dream, the Lord showed me that we will be released from here before the new year come. Hmm. I say, oh, I pray it is true. She says, no, I know it is true. And when we are released, we will tell people everywhere, there is no pit so deep. That God's love is not deeper still. Oh, and they will believe us because we have been here. (laughs) Well, shortly before Christmas, my sister was free, but she was dead. She died there. And then after Christmas, I was standing in the roll call, and my number was called. You know, we did not go by the names. We went by numbers. (gasps) 66730. My number was called. And when they call your number, you never see that person again. Mm. Oh, my and i thought i was walking surely to my death but then they tell me to take the shower and i thought it was guest chamber but water come out and they give me my clothes they say cornelia Boom, you have completed your sentence sign here huh, i say what they say yes sign that you have been well cared for <laughs> you know i sign it anyway huh? <laughs> <laughs> but i learned later it was due to clerical error that i was released
0: hmm. what did you hang on to spiritually that kept you from giving up what one thing more than any other
2: oh truly it was the love of god you know my papa told me from the time i was a small child he say Every life is valuable because we were created in the image of the Most High God. Every life is valuable. So I did not question God's love for me. No, I did get uh, perplexed. And why am I in this situation, Lord? But, you know, as my sister say to one who questioned her, why did God send you to this place? She look at her and say, oh, so that we can tell you of his love. Mm. And that really was the sustaining thing, uh, the love of God.
0: You've been listening to a conversation today on The Land in the book with somebody portraying Corey Tenboom in the 80th year of the discovery of their hiding place. Corey actually lived from 1892 to 1983, and the name of our interpreter is Gail Haas. Gail is a wife, mother, grandmother, prayer warrior, teacher, and a storyteller. Thanks for being on the program, Gail.
2: Thank you. <laughs> hey,
0: do you find that as time goes by, fewer and fewer Christians are familiar with the life of Corey Ten Boom, or worse yet, are there fewer and fewer who care?
2: Well, there definitely, um, as we have the privilege of sharing Corey's story around the country, yes, there are many who don't know of Corey Ten Boom's story. And um, I have the privilege of going into schools as well, They are studying the Holocaust, and so I'm able to bring Corey's story to life, and the students feel like they've really met a real Holocaust survivor. And so I think that it raises the bar for young people, because there were young people who were working in the Dutch underground with Corey, giving their lives, and this challenge is a great challenge for our young people today.
0: What one thing do you want your audiences to take away from your presentation, Gail?
2: I think the greatest part is, of course, her story of after the war, Corey met in Germany one of the guards from Ravensbrück. And um, after her talk, he's coming up to her and she recognizes him and and she thinks, oh, I don't even want to talk to him. And he comes to her and he looks at her and he he says, you may not know this, but I too was in Ravensbrück. And when I was there, I did terrible things. But since the war, I've met Jesus, and he's forgiven me my sins. Oh, but would you forgive me? And this guard extends his hand to her, and and Corey is thinking, oh, I cannot. But she's reminded of words from her mama and papa that said, you cannot or you will not. And as she shares, you know, forgiveness is not a feeling— but a decision that we make. And she extends her hand to the man. And as they take hands, oh, she says, it's like electric runs through her arm. And she says, yes, I forgive you. You are my brother. So the big takeaway is the incredible power of God's love and forgiveness.
0: You have spent so much time studying the life of Corey Ten Boom. When you finally meet her in heaven,
2: oh what will my. you ask her? What are you going to ask her? <laughs> oh, I think we will just jump up and down together and hug, and it will be—it'll be a wonderful time. Yes.
0: We've been visiting with Gail Haas, who portrays Corey Ten Boom and others in her ministry. A link to information about her at our website, thelandandthebook.org. It's Bible questions and Charlie Dyer's answers next here on the Land and the Book. It will soon be upon us. And one of the traditional Passover questions is, what makes this night different from all others? Well, Passover is an important biblical holiday for sure, and it has great meaning for both Jewish people and believers in Jesus. Charlie, I'm thinking that this question is a good one to ask. It is, John. If you want to learn more about what makes Passover so special, our
1: friends at Life and Messiah are offering to mail you a free copy of their Messianic Passover Haggadah. The booklet will lead you through the celebration of Passover to see the rich connections to Jesus, our Messiah, and the Last Supper. You'll also receive a link for an interactive Passover Seder video. With the Haggadah and video, you can celebrate Passover this year with your family and friends. To get this free offer, just go to lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to find out more and request your copy. That's lifeinmessiah.org.
0: All right, let's get to our stack of questions for the day. These reach us by email, and I'll share that address with you later on. But, you know, Charlie, our question number one takes us to the angel who told Mary she would be with child. Mary asked, how can this be because I'm a virgin? Mary was engaged to be married at the time, and she would have clearly known that the pregnancy would have been a result of sexual relationship with her husband. So doesn't the fact that Mary asked this question, how can this be since I'm a virgin, show that she must have taken a perpetual vow of virginity? Yeah,
1: and actually, I don't see anything like that in the passage, uh, saying she took a vow of perpetual virginity. Now, she knew she hadn't had sexual relations because such actions weren't to be taken until marriage was formalized. So when Gabriel announced she was about to conceive and bear a son, her question seems actually quite natural. How can I be pregnant since I've not known a man? And the word she uses there is the idea of knowing someone sexually. Most translate it since I'm a virgin, but the Greek literally says, since I am not knowing a man. Uh, the verbs in the present tense uh, picturing current action. So she's simply stating what seems to her rather obvious she's betrothed to Joseph, but they haven't been sexually active, or nor has she been with any other man. So she doesn't see how it's at all possible that she could have become pregnant by this time. Uh, by the way, I think Matthew makes that clear in chapter 1, verse 18. He also says she was pledged to be married to Joseph, but she had become pregnant before they came together in the sexual sense as husband and wife. But there's nothing in either passage that suggests some kind of a vow of perpetual virginity.
0: Our listener, Stephen, has a follow-up question, writing, the angel did not greet Mary by her name, but by her identity. In Luke one twenty-eight, the angel says, hail thou that art highly favored. Doesn't the word that the angel uses there mean that Mary was a pure vessel of grace without sin? Well, in Luke
1: one twenty-eight. The word Luke uses is a perfect middle participle. How's that for uh, grammar this time of day? I, I love it, Charlie. Yeah, but it's from the Greek word karitao. It's connection to the word charis, which has the idea of grace or favor. But here's the key. The same verb is used in an active sense in Ephesians 1.6, where Paul talks about the grace that God freely bestowed on us. Uh, Mary was indeed favored or blessed by God, but so are we. The use of the word doesn't mean she was without sin, just that she was highly favored by God, which is why she was selected. I don't want to disparage Mary. She's a remarkable woman of faith. At the same time, the word used by Luke doesn't demand that she be without sin any more than uh, the fact that Paul used it of us suggests we're sinless. It's simply
0: pouring meaning into that verb that's not there. You're listening to The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, is addressing questions that you can email us any old time if you've got one. The Land and the Book at moody.edu is how to connect. Okay, Gordon says, I've got three or four friends that doubt the accuracy of the Bible. They say stuff like, 'Ah, it's made up after the fact. It's just a bunch of unproven fables based on earlier manuscripts like the Epic of Gilgamesh. I'm aware that both Josh McDowell and Lee Strobel have written books providing proof of this historical accuracy of the Bible, but can you recommend one or two other books that address whether we can truly trust the accuracy of the 66 books of the Bible?
1: Well, the two books you mentioned are excellent, and and I'm not sure adding additional books to that list will ultimately help your friends. The real issue is faith. Uh, In Hebrews 11, it says, Without faith it's impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him has to believe that he exists and he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So in light of that, here's what I'd suggest. First, challenge your friends saying the real question is faith and then say to them, okay, for the next month, would you be willing to read the Bible and then pray? And as you're praying, uh, just ask God to say, if you exist, show yourself to me. And then write down any impressions and have them come back to you and discuss what they found. And then second, uh, if they say the Bible's full of errors, say to them, well, give me some examples. And I say that because a lot of people say, oh yeah, the Bible's full of mistakes, but they really can't identify any. It's just something they've heard repeated by others. But tell them, if they come to you with those questions, you'll seriously try to get them an answer. And do that, and then try and find those answers to come back to them. Now, there aren't enough books in the world to persuade Hmm. someone who chooses not to believe. But if someone's willing to honestly seek for answers and interact with, with the Bible and with God, And with a good friend who can help them understand it, I think God will then work in their heart and bring them to a point of understanding and hopefully of faith.
0: Cooper says he's concerned about the ways someone could violate Revelation 22, verses 18 and 19, which talk about adding to or taking away from the words of prophecy. Do you think someone could violate Revelation 22, 18 and 19 in any way through movements? like sign language or other movements that directly communicate something? And if someone violates those verses, do you think that proves that they're not a Christian? Well, the word used there for
1: add to in, in Revelation uh, 22 has the idea of imposing or placing something on what's already there. You know, If someone tries to alter the meaning of what God has said by adding to it, uh, God then threatens that individual with plagues or judgments. Uh, if someone tries to explain away or remove what God has said, you know, it, it says that, but it doesn't mean that. Something like that, Uh, then God says He's going to remove them from having any part in the tree of life. Now, those are severe penalties that God's imposing, uh, but He's doing it against people who deliberately try to change the meaning of what God has said is going to take place. Now, how specifically should we understand these words today? Well, at the very beginning of chapter 22, God said, Blessed is He who keeps the word of the prophecy of this book. And the word for keep has the idea of, of keep or guard. Uh, Jesus said he'll bless those who accept what he said and do what they can to protect themselves and others from trying to dismiss or distort that message. So in answer to your specific question, I don't think that uh, the warnings against someone using sign language or or any other kind of physical action, Uh, the events he's describing are really things that are going to take place. And anyone who tries to get others to disbelieve it are the ones who are deliberately opposing God, and they're the ones being warned.
0: Nick asks, was David abdicating his duty in granting Joab clemency instead of executing the law by saying, the Lord repay the evildoer according to his wickedness? Or was Solomon wrong for having Joab executed? It could be viewed that Solomon killed Joab because Joab wanted Adonijah to be king instead of Solomon. What do you think?
1: Yeah, people are going to have to follow along because that part of the Bible, in most people's minds, their eyes just go back in their head. But uh, Joab was a loyal general to David, but he was, we might say, uh, not a very nice guy. He ruthlessly ambushed. He killed Abner for killing his younger brother in battle. Uh, And Abner tried to talk his younger brother out of it. So Abner wasn't wrong in what he did. But uh, Joab led in the killing of Absalom, even though David ordered his men not to do that. Joab brutally murdered another man who had been tasked by David to put down a rebellion. And finally, while David was still alive, Joab took part in an ill-fated plot to anoint David's son Adonijah as king rather than Solomon. So he was really a kind of a brutish guy trying to get his own way. When David gave his final instructions to Solomon prior to his death, he reminded Solomon, he said, you know yourself what Joab, son of Zariah, did to me, what he did to the two commanders of Israel's enemy, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether. He killed them, shedding their blood in peacetime as if in battle. And with that blood stained the belt around his waist and the sandals on his feet. In modern terms, we might say he covered himself in the blood of the innocent. So why didn't David exercise judgment and, and order Joab killed for what he had done? I think the answer is found in, in 2 Samuel 3. Uh, David shows the people that he didn't have any part in these other executions. But then he says to his men privately, Do you not realize that a prince and a great man has fallen this day and today? Though I'm the anointed king, I'm weak. And these sons of Zerai, that is Joab and his other brother, are too strong for me. David looked at the alignment of forces and he realized those loyal to Joab and his brother were actually greater than those loyal to David. The kingdom was still fractured following the death of Saul, and David felt that if he demanded that Joab be brought to justice, it was just as likely that he'd be the one killed. So does this demonstrate weakness and a lack of faith on David's part? I'm not sure. It may show weakness, but it may also show wisdom on David's part. But when he tells Solomon is to make sure that Joab does get his justice due. And uh, Solomon wasn't wrong in putting him to death. Uh, because Joab tried to take the throne in place of Solomon. So uh, Solomon was the one who assured that God's justice was indeed done.
0: And a quick follow- up from Nick. Romans 13:4 makes it pretty clear that even ungodly authorities have the right to use capital punishment. What do you think about that?
1: Well, I think it's right. Uh, in fact, what I would end up saying in general is, the law should exercise justice. Uh, But there are times when it's appropriate to extend mercy. Now, when I go back to that question on Joab, I don't think that's what was taking place. To use the language of today, his sentence was postponed, but it was never commuted. God may be patient, but justice
0: will eventually get done. And that's a look at some of the questions that have come in. If you didn't hear yours today and you did submit it, hang in there. We'll get to it on a future broadcast. And if you'd like to submit a question, our email address is thelandandthebook at moody.edu. If it's been a while since you've been to the website, man, we'd love you to check it out. Information about today's guest, past programs, future programs, all there at thelandandthebook.org. More to come in Charlie's devotional. It's next, right here. glad you're still with us here at The Land and the Book. I'm John Gager. One of the highlights of any trip to Israel is a visit to the Dead Sea. People who have never been there say, oh, isn't that the place where you can float in the water? And my answer is, it's stranger than that. It's impossible not to float in the Dead Sea if there's just a few inches of water that you're in. And the reason for all that is one word, salt. Charlie Dyer, are you suggesting there's something in the salt that might just offer a lesson that we need to hang on to? Oh, there's an incredible lesson from that salt, John, and that's what I want to talk about. Well, we'll head down for a relaxing dip in the Dead Sea after this fully alive testimony from someone who has experienced Israel and shares this with us.
3: One of the things that has really impressed me about this particular tour is how organized the group has been. Like I've read about different tours and I really believe that this tour has visited more places than any other tour that I've ever read about. I remember getting the book uh, by Dr. Dyer about a Christian's travel to the Holy Land and being able to study about the different places and cross-reference them in my Bible before coming here and we got a map and um, we just got so many things that were in addition to, uh, over and above any other tour that I've read about. We received a journal that we could take on our trip and I've been writing in it and taking notes. We received um, so many different things that are helping me, a bag, you know, that travel bag that we could take, name tag, luggage tags. I just was very impressed by this group and how you have organized things and just given to us to make the trip better.
0: I'm looking forward to this devotional series, Charlie. It's called Objects on the Shelf. Yeah, thanks, John. For the
1: next three weeks, I'm inviting you to join me here in my office. Now, don't look too closely at all the books and bric-a-brac filling my shelves. I've got books squeezed into every available space in a random, some would probably say chaotic, order. But what's important is I know where the books are when I go to find something. All the other items are curios that I've collected in my travels that take me back to particular places and times, and they each have a story to tell. And for the next three weeks, I want to share a few of those stories with you. Today's treasure sits on a shelf just to my right. At first glance, it might remind you of something you saw in a high school or college geology class, or perhaps in a visit to a store that sells geodes. This one doesn't look overly impressive because it's relatively flat, about four by six inches in size, and formed from all white crystals. Now, what makes it interesting to me is I picked it up from the Dead Sea. Actually, it's a clump of salt that had crystallized on a pipe just under the surface of the Dead Sea. I'd been floating in the bathwater warm water when I noticed it on the pipe. I tugged on it and it slid off the pipe into my hand. The bottom is curved to match the shape of the pipe, but the top retained the jagged design formed by the salt crystals. Now, this earned a place on my shelf for two reasons. The first had to do with getting it home. For the rest of our trip, I had to let the piece sit on our different hotel room uh, desks to get it to dry. I didn't want it to dissolve into smaller salt crystals on my flight home. So I also wrapped it in toilet paper and put it in a Ziploc bag. My suitcase was filled, so I asked my wife if I could put it in her suitcase. She agreed, and we were ready to head home, or at least that's what I thought. That was several years ago, and Israel had just installed a machine to detect chemical components of explosives. Uh, that machine set out in the security area, and you had to clear it before being allowed to proceed to check-in. Well, my suitcase went through without any problems, and then they ran my wife's suitcase through the machine and then pulled it aside for a more thorough inspection. It seems that in addition to sodium chloride, common salt, the Dead Sea also contains magnesium, potassium, and several other minerals that can trigger the machine. Once they opened her suitcase and found the bag with the salt, we were cleared for departure. But the second reason I've kept that block of Dead Sea salt on my shelf is more biblical. To understand why, imagine living in Israel in Old Testament times. The Dead Sea, which, by the way, is never called that in the Bible actually plays an important role in your life. Archaeologists have discovered ruins of what's likely a processing area where the salt was extracted from the Dead Sea. The salt was used for seasoning food, but it was also used as a preservative and a disinfectant. Ezekiel 16 describes the practice of mothers rubbing newborn children with salt. And in Leviticus 2.13, God required sacrifices to be seasoned with salt. In the Bible, the Dead Sea is called the Eastern Sea, the Salt Sea, the Sea of the Arabah, or simply the Sea. The Romans and Josephus called it Lake Asphaltitis because of the blobs of tarry, asphalt-like material that on occasion could float to the surface. Now, lots of different names, but the one found most often in the Bible is simply the Salt Sea. And if you've ever had an opportunity to visit the Dead Sea, you know why the name is so appropriate. The mineral content is so dense that you physically cannot sink. And if you have any slight nicks or cuts, you'll know exactly where they are. It's the equivalent of pouring salt on an open wound. And apart from a small area where a freshwater spring drains into the Dead Sea, the entire body of water is devoid of fish. They simply can't live in the water because of its high mineral content. And that's what makes my souvenir so important. I keep it as a reminder that someday God has said he'll do the impossible. In Ezekiel 36, God promised to bring Israel back to the land in a new covenant relationship. God then provided three examples to show how dramatic the change will be. In chapter 37, God compared it to a valley of dry, bleached bones joining together and coming back to life. And in the same chapter, God used two sticks being joined together to show that this return will include both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, The promise was for all the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But God reserved His greatest illustration for the Dead Sea. In chapter 47, God promised that life-giving water would flow from a rebuilt temple down to the Jordan Valley and into the sea. Geographically, that would be the Dead Sea. And then He says, When it empties into the sea, the waters there become fresh. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes the salt water fresh. So where the river flows, everything will live. The Dead Sea coming to life, turning into fresh water, teeming with fish, is the ultimate illustration God will use in the coming kingdom era to demonstrate His faithful promise to bring His people back to the land. Now, I'm not a fisherman. But Ezekiel 47.10 goes on to describe the Dead Sea as a future destination for those who like to fish. Fishermen will stand along the shore from Engedi to Enigliam. There will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. This dead, salty body of water will become a freshwater paradise. But doesn't that also create a problem? Uh, the Dead Sea was the chief source for salt in the region. And salt was a valuable commodity. But if the Dead Sea becomes a freshwater lake, where will the people go to get salt? This isn't something we think about very often because we go to the store to buy salt. It's a rather common commodity. But to the audience in Ezekiel's day, this could create concern because salt was valuable. And I believe that's why God adds an otherwise obscure statement in the very next verse. But the swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. In bringing about a dramatic transformation, turning the salt sea into a freshwater lake, God hastens to add that he will also continue to care for the needs of his people by retaining a marshy area where salt will remain. God thinks of everything. Well, it's almost time to leave. Take one last look at my hunk of salt and then remember God's amazing promise to Israel and its application to us as well. In promising to restore the nation of Israel physically and spiritually, God was promising to do the impossible, and the Dead Sea becoming fresh will be a reminder of that in future days. But even as God demonstrates His power, He will also demonstrate His care for every detail of life. The water turns fresh, but He allows an area of salt to remain, lest God's blessing also become a hardship. And for you, what are you struggling with today? God has promised to never leave you nor forsake you, to meet your needs, and to someday take you to be with Him in heaven. But while you're watching for the big promises of God, the making the dead sea come alive sort of promises, don't forget to look for the less spectacular everyday blessings He also provides, the leaving behind the salt kind of blessings. Or as Johnson Oatman described it in the old gospel song, count your blessings, name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord
0: has done. Thank you, Charlie. We'll look forward to more from your Objects on the Shelf devotional series. Our time is gone, but we thank you for listening and we thank you for encouraging a friend to listen with you as well. Pass along the good word about this broadcast and point them to our website where they can find the podcast. You'll find us at thelandandthebook.org. That's thelandandthebook.org. For our host, Charlie Dyer, our producer, Dan Anderson, I'm John Geiger, thanking you for listening to The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.